Uh, hi, folks. Thanks for sticking around. How's everybody feeling? All right. I need the energy. I'm a little tired, as you might imagine. Uh, thank you for being here, and uh, I hope you all know this is a little bit of a, an experiment for us. We haven't done a second stage before. We certainly haven't done it on a stage, so this, in a really weird way, kind of worked out. Um, Tracy Segarra, who helps to lead the National Storytelling Network, uh, did us a great kindness. So we've been thinking about storytelling a lot. I know many of you. In fact, despite a show of hands, how many of you could say that your organization has a storytelling culture or a storytelling practice? One, oh man, a lot of you. All right, y'all want to come up here and do this? That's great. And I mean, when I say a storytelling culture and a practice, I don't mean in the comm shop. I mean like your bosses and your other bosses and your board members. How about a show of hands for that? Lot fewer. Yeah, so that's the challenge we have in front of us. But over the next hour, you guys are going to see some masterful storytellers. Uh, Tracy has been kind enough. If you saw the, the change agent that we did just a couple months back, was focused on storytelling and the science behind it, how important it is for us to take the ideas and information that we want to share and package them up in really compelling stories because it does this amazing thing inside the brain. It is literally like drugs. Uh, but Tracy came to us, she contributed to that issue and then said, I we had this idea, like what if we could bring some storytellers and actually show you guys what this looks like in practice? And Tracy was kind enough to say, I can do that. She's based in New York, she said, I think I got some people in San Francisco. So yet another moment of testimony to the power of networks, right? Tracy, do you wanna come up and uh, get us going? Thank you very, very much. Thanks for being with us, guys. Thanks for hanging with us. I've said this before, but it means a lot that you guys showed up for us, thank you. Okay, thanks, Sean, and thank you guys all for coming. I know this has been crazy. You had to change venues and places. Storytellers love theater, so we're all glad to be here in a theater, and we like to talk in front of microphones and not podiums. Um, you've, I've been, this is my first ComNet, so this is, I've been hearing a lot about storytelling, and you know, as you all know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, stories are the building blocks of communication. And the power of stories is that people, stories have that human element and show vulnerability and people are much more likely to do what you want them to do when they feel a connection with you. And the best way to make connections is through stories. So what we're gonna do this afternoon is we have four storytellers, including me, I'll tell one at the end, and they will tell you different personal stories. Each of them have different moments, but what you're gonna find about all of them is that they each have and I know this sounds elementary, but they each have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what they have that's also in common is that they are one person at the beginning of the story, something happens, there are some stakes in the story, and then there's somebody else. They're somehow different, they're somehow changed, there's an aha moment at the end of the story. And so what I want you to do is to listen to stories just because they're wonderful stories, I've heard them all so I know that, I can attest but also to think about the questions you'd like to ask the storytellers. We'll have a little Q&A after everybody tells their stories about how they crafted their stories for effect and for impact, what they kept in, what they took out, and to see how that you can utilize story. I mean, I know a lot of you are already utilizing storytelling for your companies and for your nonprofits and foundations, but maybe you'll be able to hopefully find new ways, new avenues to incorporate personal stories into what you do. 
So that being said, I'm going to call up our first storyteller. Uh, everybody here is from the San Francisco area, although Meg was originally from New York, right? Or thereabouts. All right, so our first storyteller is Meg Farrell. It was Friday afternoon, and I was at work, and I got an email from my wife. And it was empty, except the subject line, which just said, these bitches are stealing our sperm, buy it all now. But the thing is, I am not an impulsive person. It took me five years to ask my wife to marry me. It took me five years, because I'm the kind of person that believes I can create a perfect moment. Whereas my wife, she's the kind of person that just rides any moment out like it's a wave. So I knew when she said, these bitches are stealing our sperm, buy it all now, that it was a call to action. It was a modern day Paul Revere warning, and the British were these bitches, and they were coming for our sperm, and I needed to buy it. But the thing is, guys, I'd never really wanted kids. When I was little, my mom said to me once, I'm gonna love you even if you're a serial killer on death row from having killed someone. That is some really hardcore, unconditional love. I remember thinking I'm never gonna love anyone that much, except for maybe myself, because I'm like a little bit vain. So you see, we hadn't gone into this with the purpose of baby making. Sure, we talk casually about babies, like how we talk casually about going to Greece, or how we talk casually about taking the dog to the groomer. Neither of which we've done, y'all, neither. In fact, prior to this, my only baby-making experience was when me and my sister went to get our Cabbage Patch dolls, and she chose a brown hair, brown-eyed little girl, very much like her, and I chose a half-human, half-cat. <laughs> I'm just not made out for this. I'm not even a nurturer. I don't even like to be touched. Like, when I see someone approaching for a hug, I can feel my bones brace for impact. But most of all, I just didn't want to be like my dad someone who was content with a title but wouldn't dig for a real relationship, someone that could go five or 10 years without talking to their kid. Because that ability that he has to distance himself from anyone and everything, well, I have that too. But then, y'all, my wife said she found a deal. There is nothing I love more than a deal. 50 bucks for three months of unlimited access to all the sperm bank donor profiles. We're talking medical records, written responses, audio interviews, baby pictures. I mean, ironically, I was about to know more about these donors than I knew about my wife. And at first, it was just fun. It was like people watching on steroids. I remember listening intently to one audio interview where the donor was asked what his best trait was. And he said, my best trait is that I'm a genius. That is just not how geniuses talk. But I was hooked. I could not stop looking. It was like watching people pick their nose in public. Like no matter how much you don't want to look, you can't stop looking. So after countless profiles and making a decision and then changing it and making a decision and then changing it, we finally found him, our donor. And just to put it really simply, he was just someone you want more of in this world. But now there was an actual email demanding actual action. Buy them all now. How much is all, I wrote back. Because, see, I know that our insurance doesn't consider us infertile. 
we just can't make a baby. And now some babies, they're only going to cost you like five shots of tequila and maybe an STD. <laughs> but babies of love and science, they can really add up. I mean, on top of sperm, there's IUI insemination. That'll run you like 300 to 500 a pop. And it only gives you a 10 to 20% chance of pregnancy. And sure, there's IVF, which will get you up to a 30 to 40% chance. But it'll cost you 13 to 15 grand a go. And then there's medical visits, there's fertility drugs, there's surrogates. I mean, this is a very planned pregnancy. Tequila doesn't even come into play until you see your credit card bill. So I asked her, how much is all? I wrote back, and she wrote back, 10 vials. 10 vials at, 700, at $700 a pop. I could buy you a man for that much money. So there I sat with my cursor hovering over a virtual cart filled with a modest amount of virtual sperm. And part of me was thinking, B of A is going to freeze my credit card for suspicious activity. And I'm going to have to explain to Kevin in South Dakota that sperm was indeed one of my last three purchases. <laughs> Gas, burrito, and yes, Kevin, a couple grand of sperm. But most of me knew that I was just really scared, like I've been at all the big moments in my life, like when I asked my wife to marry me. Because big moments mean big change. But I also knew that the only thing I've ever regretted about those moments was not doing them sooner. Now, guys, this is not what pregnancy looks like. This is what beer looks like. <laughs> my wife carried, and our son is now three years old. And three months ago, we welcomed our second son. And parenting is just so hard. I'm sure a lot of you guys know that. But every day, I feel like I am just doggy paddling to keep my head above water. And each day brings some new challenge. And once I master that challenge, a new one appears. And I feel like I will very much always be the grasshopper, never quite the sensei. And if we're being honest, I thought I would be better just because they existed. I thought I'd be a great parent. I'm OK. I'm not great. I talk too loud. My touch is abrasive. And patience is really something that I don't seem to have. The one thing I do know is that we have the number one ingredient you need to have a happy kid, a dog. <laughs> and love, lots of love. Because I know I can say without a doubt that I'm going to love them, even if they're serial killers on death row for having killed someone. Thank you, guys. Hey, that was Meg Farrell. So yeah, if my kids were serial killers on death row, I would love them too. And you know, it's the surprises in a story, the, the things you don't expect people to say that really make them powerful. So once again, give it up for Meg Farrell. And I'll just tell you a little bit about Meg. It's, it's in the app, but I'll t read it anyway. Meg's a Bay, Bay Area-based storyteller and comedian. She's an instructor and main stage performer for The Moth. She's a five-time winner of The Moth Story Slam and a two-time winner of The Moth's Grand Slam. How many of you have listened to The Moth Radio Hour or other stories? All right, see, I had a feeling that this crowd would, so a lot of us 
came to storytelling because we started listening to the moth. So our next storyteller also has some moth in his background, and uh, please welcome Corey Rosen. Hi. A week before the last day of school this year, uh, I got punched in the face by a mother at our school, dropping my kids off at school. Um, my, my kids and I have a kind of routine that we do every day. Uh, my daughter's 10, she's in fourth grade, my son's 12, he goes to the middle school about three blocks away from where the elementary school is here in San Francisco. And um, one day, my daughter asked me, how long does it take to get to school in the morning? And I said, well, why don't you write down the time? And so this started about three years ago, she started keeping uh, a log, a log of exactly what time we started and got to school every day. And over the three years, this log has expanded. It's gotten more detailed. There's been additional things added to the log, such as an M or D column, mom or dad who drove to school, um, an H or N column for who sat in the front seat, for fairness, um, uh, as well as a notes column for uh, anything special or out of the ordinary that happened uh, along the way to school that might have maybe affected the uh, journey. My daughter is very STEM, you might have gathered. Uh, she um, logs, for example, um, this one corner that we call dad-son corner, where we see from time to time a, a father-son waiting for their bus. We get actually really excited when we see dad-son corner because we don't see them all that often, but they're a, they're a staple. They're like a, a, a pillar along our journey. There was also special events, a time that uh, I left my bagel on top of the garbage can and had to come back for my bagel, uh, a time that Henry got a nosebleed, uh, and a time that my car broke down and we had to call mom to come back and pick us up, and that threw off the, the average. So these are just sort of special events. Uh, on this particular day, uh, we left the house a little later than our average 7.19 to 7.22 time, uh, at exactly 7.28, I know because it is so noted in the log, and uh, we were on our way to Rooftop Elementary, which is the name of our school. Now, Rooftop, for those of you who uh, don't live in San Francisco, is in the Twin Peaks neighborhood near where that big Sutro Tower is on the western side of the city. Uh, it's a lovely, it's one of the highest elevations in San Francisco, and it's actually the geographic center of San Francisco, right outside the school. And um, the school is a, in a lovely kind of residential neighborhood. So the final approach to the school is a little kind of uh, two-lane winding road uh, where you approach the, the final school. And so at, uh, at precisely 7.42 a.m., I know, because of the log, um, uh, an unusual situation occurred. As we're driving on, as I mentioned, this little two-lane narrow road, uh, a vehicle was stopped on the right-hand shoulder of the road, and a guy was standing right next to the car. And I kind of sensed that he was either going to get into his car or he was going to cross the street, and so I did sort of the sensible thing, and I stopped and kind of waited to see what was happening so I didn't say, hit a guy on the way to school. And there was a a vehicle behind me that clearly did not see why I was stopping. They thought, in, in San Francisco, maybe where you come from, there's this thing called Uber, and cars just stop wherever the hell they want, and uh, they probably thought I was doing that and just stopping, but I, I wasn't. I was being, I thought, sensible and safe, and yet the driver, the motorist behind me, 
leaned on their horn and like, Meh! like the punishing, angry, beeping honk. And I'm not going to get bullied by this at this time. I am going to just do the thing, make sure that everything's cool. And at the moment that I sense that everything was cool, I proceed to gently roll forward, at which point the driver behind me continues the assault. And I got to say, I, I don't deal well with road rage, with road ragers in general. When I sense that somebody is either driving closer or getting angrier, I kind of flip it and I go the other way. I will go slower or more deliberate, that kind of thing. It's just my way. It's like part safety, part being a dick. I don't know, but it's, it's being, that's what I do. That's the, the place that I go to. And this clearly is not what the person behind me has in mind who continues this assault. And it's at this point that I pull out the move. Um, I definitely, I, I can take no credit for the move. I didn't invent the move. Maybe some of you do the move or are familiar with it. Uh, the move is, of course, where you step on the brake really fast. And so you stop the car as opposed to going forward, at which point it makes the person behind also have to step on their brakes and stop as well. It's not kind, but it usually conveys the point, which is get off, right? And in the cases when it works the best, the car behind stops the tailgating and you kind of merrily go on your way. Well, this did not have that effect. The, the crescendo of bile and fury and anger and, and uh, beeping and now cursing, I can hear through the closed windows of my car. I can hear the anger behind me, at which point she tries to do something um, really unsafe, which is to overtake me and to pass me on, as I mentioned, a very narrow two-lane residential road uh, two blocks from an elementary school. So uh, as I sense this is happening, that's when I did the second move, which is the one that I'm not as proud of. Um, maybe some of you have guessed already. I sped up. I sped up, I stepped on the gas as she's trying to get around me and now I'm going uh, fast enough so that 10 seconds later as I pull up to the drop-off line of all the cars waiting to drop their kids off, she's landlocked next to me in the oncoming traffic lane with nowhere to go and uh, screaming at me. And this is normally, uh, at least in my experience with road rage uh, situations, where the fight ends, right? Well after middle fingers and some colorful language is, is exchanged. But this is generally where everybody feels like they were in the right, the other person was wrong, and they go on their different ways. That is not the situation here. I pulled my orange uh, Mini Cooper over to the side of the road. I have to get out of the car to let my daughter Noli out of the car. I uh, give her a hug, and she starts to make her way to school. When uh, I see, walking up the, the middle of the street, um, a woman and she is coming right at me, and she has got fire in her eyes, and she is looking for a fight, or looking for the argument, satisfaction. I get back in my car, and I open up my window, and uh, let me maybe paint the picture a little bit for you. So we're, we're right across the street from where the school is. I am wearing a, um, a bow tie, because I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to be with a jury duty that day, and I like to look a little weird uh, at jury duty. Um, because I, I do. And uh, my son 
is sitting next to me in the car, and uh, the, the, around us are all the other parents, uh, principals, buses, uh, children, all on their way to school, which, by the way, we are not late for. It is 7.50 is the time that the first bell rings, so we're early. And, uh, but I open up the window, and she comes up, and she's screaming at me. You were dangerous, she yells at me. You almost made me crash into you, at which point I um, took a deep breath, and I said, um, I think maybe you want to take, take a deep breath. Uh, it sounds like you have a little road rage. I have a wife uh, who told me that was not the right thing to say in this situation. Uh, if you have an angry person confronting you, apparently the thing never to say is, uh, you should calm down, ma'am. Uh, that had the negative effect that uh, I guess it would be. So, so at this point, I kind of try to take in the situation, and I say, uh, ma'am, my son is in the car, and she goes, I have kids in my car too, and you made us almost crash into you, at which point I sensed that this situation was getting worse and not better, and while there's this thing called the alien brain, the sort of fight or flight or freeze instinct, I am all about the flight, I realize about myself. I'm all about runaway, and so as I reach for the... Um, the toggle to bring the window up is where I feel the fist hit me in the side of my jaw. And I did kind of see it, so I did a little lean. But still, sure enough, the shock of a parent punching me in the face was enough for me to say a full-on, like, goodbye, and I'm out of here. And I, I uh, pull out, and I drive away to go the, the next three blocks up the road to, uh, to take my son to school. And... Um, and, and I realize that this sounds um, uh, kind of one-sided, a lot of the story, like sort of my perspective of this. Um, by the way, I was not selected for jury duty. The bow tie trick does work. But um, the, the takeaway that I have from this situation is, is, is interesting to me, which is that there was no uh, contact between me and the woman after she, she hit me and after our altercation. Uh, and there's been no actual repercussions, but this is not a story for me about crime and punishment. This is not about something wrong happening to me. It's actually a story uh, about bubbles, about the bubble that I live in, about my, my city, about my family, and about myself, about the fact that I have these, these rituals that have actually cut me off from the community and the city that I live in. I drive with my family in our little bubble, and we pass as we go through San Francisco and we go on our little routines in our little way past other bubbles, past dad's son corners all over San Francisco, and we have cut ourselves off in our, in our smug, small way. And this incident, this encounter, was me being smug and small, was me being rude, was me, me driving unsafely, and me antagonizing somebody who clearly was having a far worse day than I was. And in fact, um, it was not her, but my city that I felt punching me in, in the face. That in fact, uh, I got my bubble popped that morning, and it made me re-look at myself and the decisions uh, that I make and how I make them. Um, I helped my daughter the night before the last day of school make her log. She takes her journal, her day of, or her year of uh, data, and I help her put it into Google Sheets and, and make a graph and map it all out, and uh, I was 
happy and delighted to find that May 27th, dad punched in face, will live forever in my daughter's journal and memory. Thank you. Okay, that was Corey Rosen. Tell you a little bit about Corey. Uh, other than that, he has been tended to road rage. Uh, Corey is a company member of the Bats Improv and host of the Berkeley Maurice Moth Story Slam. Corey has been featured on Backfence PDX, Alice Radio, and the Moth Radio Hour. By day, he's a writer and marketing executive for Tippett Studio, where he recently completed writing the screenplay for a Chinese theme park attraction. Ask him about that afterwards. Uh, for more information, visit CoreyRosen.com. Okay, our next storyteller coming up is Dana Merwin. Yeah, that feels right. Hey, how are y'all? Good, good. Um, this is really exciting, by the way, just to be in this theater. So thank you again for, for having me. My name is Dana. Um, uh, it was a hot, humid day in Villarica, Georgia, when I uh, lost Burt Reynolds' Rolex. Yeah, that Burt Reynolds, the, uh, the actor, uh, he, he passed away last month, but not before leaving us with such classics as Deliverance, Smokey and the Bandit, and Boogie Nights. If, if you still don't know uh, who he is, uh, he was one of the biggest movie stars in the 80s. Um, uh, today, it would be like if uh, Matthew McConaughey and Ryan Gosling had a baby, but um, with a mustache. He had that like charisma, that like campy kind of charm. Uh, and I grew up watching his movies. Uh, I'm from Georgia, he's from Georgia, and in the South, he's kind of a god. He's, um, he's movie Jesus. Uh, so it was a big deal when, uh, when I was in my 20s and I was uh, working on one of his movies back in Georgia. Uh, he was in his 70s, he was only there for one day, it was a small part, uh, so we all stood in line to get our pictures taken with him. And I thought that was going to be my, uh, my souvenir uh, until the next day. Uh, I was uh, working on set, and the prop guy came up to me, and he said, Hey, Dana, can you do me a favor? I forgot to give Bert his watch back. And I was like, Sure, of course. And he pulls out the Ziploc bag, and inside the Ziploc bag is no ordinary watch. No, it is like this heavy gold diamond and encrusted Rolex. I had never seen a Rolex up close. I didn't know much about them, except... Rolex is like the Rolex of watches, <laughs> and it probably cost more than I would make that month. So I took it, and I put it in my backpack. And at that point, I should have taken it to anyone, uh, a producer, a director, anyone but me should have had that watch at that point. Instead, I went to go see my parents, because on top of everything, they were on set that day. Uh, they had driven up from my hometown of Adel, Georgia, and uh, they were going to be extras in one of the scenes that day. 
extras are the people you see in the movie who are usually in the background and they're not supposed to be talking, which is a challenge for my parents. Uh, so I was like, oh, they get to be mini movie stars and they get to see me in action. Because uh, I had wanted to make movies since, since I was a kid. Uh, they knew this. Uh, that, was, that was the part they expected, right? Uh, a little bit of backstory. Uh, I was raised super Christian. Uh, that meant I was in church from the day I was born until the day I left, uh, usually three times a week. And uh, if, if uh, you're watching Jeopardy with me and that Bible category comes on, just, just put your clicker down because I'm going to own it. And if I wasn't in church, the other place that I was during my childhood was the movie theater. Uh, by the age of 10, I could recite both John 3.16 and Tim Burton's Batman with equal enthusiasm. So my parents knew that my love affair with film was probably going to compete with, uh, with JC. So that didn't surprise them as much. The harder part wasn't moving to Los Angeles, which is what I did after, after college. Uh, the harder part for them was when I moved in with my boyfriend. Uh, because you see, um, that's called living in sin. And they take that very seriously, uh, not only my parents, but my relatives. Uh, they didn't hesitate to actually uh, tell me that because of this, um, everything that I would do would be damned. Damn. <laughs> That's, that's heavy. Like, um, I don't know if you remember when you left home for the first time to pursue your hopes and dreams, uh, but just like all the things you screwed up along the way was like enough, right? Uh, but to think that maybe it was because you were on this D-list uh, that your parents were telling you, uh, it, it was stressful. Uh, there I was in Los Angeles, uh, and I was pretty much alone. Uh, this relationship that was so sinful was actually really supportive and good, and, and uh, if L.A. was hell, <laughs> it felt pretty right. Like, I was, I was learning this craft that I'd only dreamed about as a kid. I was meeting actors and storytellers and writers and comedians, and, and it, it was really hard a lot. Like, a lot of my early jobs was just driving around this enormous city and feeling sometimes very alone. But when you're driving around that city, it gives you time to think, right? Uh, you think about why you're there and is it worth leaving everything you knew? Is there a God? If I sneeze, will I cause an accident? These are really important things you think about when you're, when you're starting out. So unpacking all of that was where I was. I'd come back to Georgia to work on this movie, so it was kind of this mini homecoming, this way of saying, like, I left home to do this thing, and this is, this is what it looks like, and this is what really excites me. So I went to go check on them. They were in an auditorium, uh, not this majestic, uh, but they were eating, like, some crackers and drinking some Coke, and I checked in on them, and I, they were good, and they were good. And so I was like, I got to go. So I went off again with my backpack, and I was running errands, and it was really hot. If you've never been to Georgia in the summer, it's like being in a sauna with all your clothes on for 10 hours. And so I was a little tired, and I looked around, and I was like, I just, I'm going to take this backpack off for just, like, a second. Is this really hot and sweaty? So I turned to the sound guy, and I was like, hey, do you mind if I leave my backpack here? And he was like, yeah, no problem. I was like, I'll be back in a minute. 
One minute led to 10, and 10 led to 20, and then an hour later, I came back, and it was gone. Not only was the backpack gone, the sound guy was gone. In fact, all of the crew had moved to an entirely new building for a new scene. So I frantically went there. I found the sound guy. I was like, where's my backpack? He shrugs. That shrug like set off this like panic attack. I'm looking all around. There's nothing but cables and gear and carts. I look for an hour. I can't find it. Uh, there are other production assistants, and I'm like, I'm going to have to tell somebody. I can't do this on my own. And so I tell them, and they're frantically looking, and we've been looking for what seemed like hours. And so I go check in with my parents. And I walk in, and I don't know. It doesn't seem to matter how old you are. Your parents can tell when there's something wrong. And they said, what's, what's the matter? And I had to say what no kid wants to tell their parents. Mom, Dad, I lost Burt Reynolds' Rolex. And my mom said without hesitation what she has said when they faced any problem in their life. She said, let's pray. And instinctually, I bowed my head. And I don't know if God's ever heard a prayer to help find a movie star's watch, but they have never heard a prayer as sweet and as sincere as my mama's that day. And then she said, amen, and my dad said, amen, and I maybe said amen. But what I felt was that calm that comes with your parents telling you it's going to be okay. And I would realize years from now that I knew their language. I knew that language and what they were trying to tell me, that they were scared that their daughter was moving away and this was their way of saying it, and I knew their language, but what was happening when I moved away is that I was hearing something new that I'd never heard before if I had stayed there. Uh, and that little voice, which was just starting that day, um, was my voice. So my head was still pretty down when I walked out of that auditorium, but then I turned to my left and I kid you not, on a park bench under these two massive lights was the book bag. And inside it was the watch. And I was just doing the biggest dance. And I told them and I told everyone. And by the end of the shoot, people were calling me Rolex. And it was fine because <laughs> that day my career didn't end and my relationship didn't end with my parents. And I don't know, like, was it the power of prayer? Was it the power of parents? Or does God love Burt Reynolds as much as we do? Thank you so much. Thank you. Everybody, Tracy. Uh-oh. Did I turn it off? Tracy, everybody. Hey. Dana Merwin. Oh, I miss Burt Reynolds. I remember the 80s. Dana Merwin was born and raised in the swamps of Georgia. She worked in film and television production in LA before moving to San Francisco to work for Al Jazeera America. She currently works as the program officer for the International Documentary Association. She has performed at the Moth Grand Slam, San Francisco Sketch Fest, Porchlight Storytelling Series, and the Lyon or Lyon Improv Festival. She studied at the Clown School of San Francisco, Del Art International, and Upright Citizens Brigade. Dana Merwin. 
Okay, we just have one more story from me, and then we are gonna all come up here. And you guys, hopefully you've been listening to the stories and you have questions about crafting the stories. And uh, we'll do that in a minute. So, after three miscarriages, I'm pregnant again. This time with twins. And I want to be excited and happy about this. But all I am is terrified, terrified that something's gonna go wrong. But thankfully, the pregnancy goes beautifully, and I'm at the 32-week appointment, and I go to my obstetrician, and you know they're taking my vital signs, and he examines me, and he says, Tracy, I need you to go to the hospital right now. And I look around, I'm like, I feel fine. I'm like, but I, I've got a haircut and a pedicure. And he says, Tracy, your blood pressure is dangerously high, you're having contractions, I need you to go to the hospital now. And they must have called ahead because by the time I get to the hospital, they're like practically ripping my clothes off. They're shooting me full of magnesium sulfate to stop the labor, giving me something else to make the blood pressure go down. And I feel fine. And it's not until I see these two baby bracelets, they put these baby bracelets on my wrist, baby A and baby B, because if none of this works, that means they're gonna have to do an emergency C-section right then, right there, do I realize the seriousness of the situation. And I start freaking out because it is much too soon for these babies to be born. Thankfully, the drugs work and my blood pressure comes down, the contractions stop, but this whole episode earns me a, a full-time stay in the hospital for the duration of the pregnancy until it's time for the babies to be born. And I am so bored in the hospital that I just wait every day for the ladies with the craft carts to come around, and I do every craft on that card. I do, you know, like I make a, a mosaic tile trivet, it spells out dad, you know, like for my husband, like if you squint that you can see that it says that. And I make this gorgeous painting of a horse and my obstetrician comes by one day and he looks at it and he goes, Tracy, that's incredible. Until I have to confess that it's paint by numbers. <laughs> you know? But really good paint by numbers, like I, I put a lot of effort into it. Anyway, the day finally arrives for the babies to be born, and it has to be a C-section because baby B has her foot squarely under baby A's head, kind of blocking the runway. And as they wheel me into the operating room, all of a sudden, I am once again terrified that something terrible is gonna happen. But then I have this thought, and when I see my obstetrician, I say, this is elective surgery, right? And he says, yeah. And I say, can we elect to do this another day? And he just looks at me and he laughs and he says, no, Tracy, it is time to meet your babies. And after what seems like an eternity, but is probably only like 45 minutes or so, my daughters, Lily Ann and Jessica Rose are born. And when I hear their dueling banjo cries from the opposite sides of the room, you know, doo 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 I finally feel like, ugh, oh, you know, I can finally breathe and just be a mom. But the next day, during routine tests, they discover a murmur in Lily's heart. And further tests show that she has a very serious congenital heart defect called Tetralogy of Fallot. And she's gonna need open heart surgery in the next few months in order to survive. Well, I'm in shock when they, this cardiologist I've never met, 
I've never met starts telling me all the things that are wrong with my baby's heart. And then I'm terrified when they discuss the open heart surgery and what they're going to have to do to fix it. And then I'm angry at God mostly for giving me this broken baby. Well, the next few weeks are a whirlwind of learning how to take care of infant twins, watching Lily like a hawk to make sure that she doesn't turn blue, which means her blood pressure, her, um, what is it, whatever it is, her blood oxygen level has dropped, and that, which would mean I'd have to rush her to the hospital, and interviewing heart surgeons. Now, I don't know anybody less qualified than me to interview heart surgeons. You know, I am, you know, liberal arts major all the way. Science and I do not mix. I have no idea what's going on beneath the skin in my body. And, but I know I need to do this for my baby. So the first surgeon we meet uh, tells us that he wants to use Kevlar to fix the hole. She has two holes in her heart. And I know what Kevlar is. That's what they use in bulletproof vests. And I, I just shudder to think of them putting that in my tiny baby's body. The next surgeon we meet is like Dr. Kildare, like gorgeous and confident and arrogant. And he says, oh, there's absolutely no reason that you have to do the surgery so soon. She's in no distress right now. We can wait until she grows and her heart grows. You can wait. Come back in a year. We can do the surgery then. The third surgeon we meet is Dr. Q. And Dr. Q is this Belgian with these bushy eyebrows, eyebrows, five foot five, but intimidating as hell. He has the bedside manner of Vladimir Putin. On a good day, I'll give him that. But after like the first two questions, I can just tell he wants us out of his office. He just does not want to deal with us. But I know that this is my job. I have to find the right surgeon for my child. So we keep asking questions. But in the end, we decide to go with Dr. Q. Because the only question we've asked these doctors that really matters is, how many of your babies don't die? And Dr. Q has the best stats. On the day of Lily's surgery, she weighs 10 pounds, she's just five months old, and her heart is roughly the size of a walnut. And I think to myself, how? How can they even operate on a heart that small? But I have to put that thought out of my head because otherwise I would not be able to hand over my baby to this anesthesiologist who's standing there with outstretched arms to take my baby behind these huge steel doors into an operating room. So I do. And when she disappears behind that door, I break down because I'm supposed to be there to protect her. And this is the first time in her life that I can't do anything. So. We go upstairs and we wait in the waiting room and after a few hours, Dr. Q comes out and he, he wheels her into the pediatric ICU and he tells us it went beautifully, she's going to be fine. And we never see Dr. Q again. But that night, there are complications. Her lungs have filled with fluid and she needs to be intubated and sedated until her lungs can clear. And so every day, we just sit vigil by her bedside, and I ask the doctors every day, can you wake her up today? And every day they say, no, not today. And every evening, my husband sleeps by her bedside, and I go back to my mother's apartment where my other twin, Jessica, is, and take care of her, and every morning I come back to the hospital. And one morning I come back, and I look at Fred, and he says, it was a bad night. And I frantically look over at Lily, and he's like, no, Lily's fine. 
He said, but during the night, one of the babies didn't make it. And the parents weren't there, and it was pandemonium. And it was the first time that I felt some relief because I knew even though she had complications, Lily was going to be okay. And the next day, I asked the doctor, Are you gonna, can you wake Lily up today? And he says, not today, but maybe tomorrow. And the next day, finally, they can take out the tubes and I can hold her. And the, the thing I want more than anything is to get that antiseptic, horrible hospital smell off of her. So I wipe her down with baby wipes. I take the hospital gown off of her and I put her in her teddy bear onesie and I hold her. I get to hold my baby. And the feeling's just indescribable. And after five more days, we finally get to take her home. And I'm still so frightened. She's got this, you know, Frankenstein scar, like practically running the length of her chest. And I can tell that she's still in some pain. So again, I watch her like a hawk. But about a week later, I go to pick her up from her crib, and she turns to me, and she gives me this crooked little lily smile. And it's the first time that she's smiled since the surgery. And it's only then that I know in my heart that she's going to be okay. Well, 13 years later, we get invited to a hospital gala honoring Dr. Q. And so we go, the whole family. And at one point during the evening, um, Lily and I go to seek Dr. Q out. And we see him, and she taps him on the shoulder. And she says, Dr. Q, my name's Lily. When I was a baby, you fixed my heart. And you know, he's just kind of the same, you know, just kind of like nodding. Um, but there is a hospital photographer there, and he captures the moment he wants to take a picture. So Dr. Q, you know, dutifully puts his arm around Lily, and they take a photo. And I remember leaving the event that evening, and of course I'm grateful to him for what he did, but I remember thinking how surgeons, the ones we met, they're just so arrogant, they're, they have no bedside manner, they just, and I think to myself that they really must go into this for the, for the intellectual challenge, you know, not so much caring about their patients. But a few weeks later, I come across this New York Magazine article, and it's all about Dr. Q, it's a profile on him, so of course I read it. And there is one paragraph in the article that really sticks out for me. And that in that paragraph, he tells the reporter that in order to do what he does every day, he needs to keep a certain distance from the families. And after I read it, I go back and I look at that photo of Lily and Dr. Q. And in the photo, now when I look at it, I see that not only is his arm wrapped around his shoulder, but it's wrapped around so tightly that one of her curls is wound around his finger. And I think to myself, you know, maybe we're not so different, Dr. Q and I. I'm a writer, and when I write, I block out everything, my family, you know, so I can focus. It doesn't mean that I love them any less. And now when I look at that photo of Lily and Dr. Q, I focus in on his hands. Because these are the hands that reached into my broken baby's walnut-sized heart and made it whole. And now here they are, wrapped around my child in what maybe, just possibly, is a hug. Thank you.
Okay, I'm gonna ask all my fellow storytellers to come up and we've got some time for Q&A, so I don't know, I don't know if we have a microphone in the audience, but if anybody wants to ask us questions about our stories or about how we crafted them. Yes, any questions? <laughs> yes, go ahead. Let's see if this is on. Okay, we can share this. Does anyone want to go first? Uh, so I'm, I tend to write, I think you have like performers and you have writers who are storytellers. I tend to write um, out, I'd say what you call like an outline. I'm also a stand-up comic, so I focus a lot on my jokes, probably too much sometimes, but sometimes it's about getting the punch. So I would say I write like an outline, but I still leave it very loose. And then once I get to a certain stage, I just run it over and over and over again, and it organically kind of like shapes itself a bit. Uh, yeah, mine's not too dissimilar to that. Um, just finding a, a story that I like to tell with friends, or I found that I've ended up telling over drinks or at a party, and I realize like, oh, I, there's something to that story. And uh, I think my biggest uh, thing is I, I, I stare at the computer too long, and uh, like even leading up to today, I kept going back to the computer and then I, I just broke away and uh, I stare at a wall and I'll tell the story to the wall or the cat or, you know, whatever feels like a, an audience. And then because I realize when I type, it's not usually how I speak. And so I kind of have to break out of that because I think we have language uh, that we're used to reading versus how we actually talk. Um, that's been my process. Um, so sometimes there's like a thing that happens to me and I'm like, is that a story or is that just like a thing that happened? So like, that's where I sometimes like look at those things and I try to analyze like what, what makes it a story? Like what's the difference between like an interesting thing that happened, like somebody punched me in the face versus like, what's the story and the thing that makes it for me kind of worth working on or developing or telling is do I see any bigger story beyond the thing? You know, like, is it about something else? Is it just an interesting anecdote that happened? Or is it like, oh, this is something that kind of reflects on my life, my family, my world, something like that. So to me, that's part of like my process is, is it something that I just would like, this crazy thing happened to me today? Or is it like, oh, I can actually look beyond it and that I get from telling it to people. I'll just tell it to someone, and it's either like, oh, that was, that was a thing that happened, or it's like, wow, and then they'll ask more questions about it, and then I kind of start to look into, you know, what is it? You know, what's it, like, it really about? Yeah, it's interesting. This story that I told uh, today has gone through a lot of iterations. I originally told it at a Moth Story Slam, I think like two years ago, and it had a very different ending because I don't think I really understood, you know, the whole meaning of it. And when I looked at the picture of Lily and Dr. Q and then I read the article, it, it still took me a while and going over it with other people to figure out what it meant. And for me, I really try when I craft my stories to see where that aha moment is. To me, the aha moment is really important in storytelling um, because it helps me understand 
how it changed me. And I think it's that change that people really, you know, when I tell this story, the, one of the first times I told this story, when I told it with this ending, I told it at an event, and I, I wrote about this in Change Agent, and this woman came up to me afterwards, and she had worked in the operating room with Dr. Q, not when my daughter was being operated on, and she said to me, she said, thank you so much for telling that story because you gave me the perspective of the family that I never had before, and it helped me, it will help me be a better doctor. And it's like, so to me, that's what's meaningful about this. And I'm teaching a storytelling course right now to um, Malloy College in New York, which is primarily a nursing school. And I said, imagine if this were, you know, a nurse telling the story, if this was her story, you could tell this about, you know, you learned, maybe you, that you could say you learned in nursing. You know, my story is about not prejudging people, you know, not assuming you know something about them. Um, and not, you know, not having that prejudice. And so, you know, you, I'm sure that you did learn in nursing school that, you know, you have to take everything to account and not prejudge. So it could be a kind of story that could be used as an alumni story. Yes. How much critical feedback do you seek? Um, uh, how, uh, I uh, am super hard on myself, uh, and uh, it's interesting. I will tell uh, the story to different people, especially the ending. I like knowing my first line and my last line, and it's funny, tonight I definitely added some things I didn't intend to. Um, and uh, my partner said, you know, you can get notes, you don't have to take them all. And even his note, I was like, I'll, maybe we'll take that. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy feedback. If, if I think if a note is consistently coming up, and then I think it's worth addressing. If someone's confused, especially, uh, I listen to those notes. Um, but if someone tells me they don't think that line's funny, I don't care if it makes me laugh. Yeah, I'd say um, the best thing that someone ever told me was listen to it all, but only take to heart what's true to you. So if it doesn't, you'll get a lot of people that'll give you edits and you'll just be like, that's not what happened or that's not me or that's not right for the story or that's not the point I'm trying to tell. And I think it's you're the filter there to make sure it's true to you because an audience knows the minute it's not really true to you and it's painful to be on stage and have a moment like that. So I think that's for me how I do it. Um. Uh, so I, I'm an improviser, so I'm very yes, Andy, in the uh, world of giving and receiving feedback. I'm very open to hearing ideas, and the thing that I, the, the the learning that I had that I think has been the most profound in terms of applying feedback that I get, and I I work on it with myself, and also in groups that I work with is um, Aikido. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the martial art of Aikido, it's um, essentially a martial art in terms of the practice to uh, protect yourself, but also to protect your opponent. Um, I'll apply it in, in this way. When someone's giving you feedback, there's three ways that you could respond. One is to shut them out and to like close your ears and to just protect yourself, like, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. Just put your wall up. And you feel like, yeah, I did it. I didn't have to hear their feedback, and I'm fine. But what's the matter with my story? I still can't figure out. So my story. The second um, 
thing people do is they'll fight back anytime they give you feedback. Uh, they'll tell you, well, that wouldn't work because I thought about that and that's, that's a bad idea. And then, and then you find if you fight enough people on their criticism or their ideas, they'll just stop giving you ideas because they don't want to be yelled at. Um, so the, the better way that I try to apply criticism or critique or ideas is to try them is to, to yes and an idea. Like, well, what would happen if I tried that? And you just take it for a walk to, to experiment, experiment with what if I tried that, and maybe it doesn't go anywhere. But if it does, then it's helped me to move my story forward. Yeah, I'm, I, I think most people, I, I hate criticism. Nobody wants to be criticized. <laughs> um, but what I've learned is that people who really understand stories can help. They've made my stories immeasurably better. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's something that you know about yourself or you know about your own story that is not as obvious to your audience. Like, I just told a story about becoming a pool hustler when I was 13 down at my grandparents' retirement community, and I talked about coming back, like, nine years later, and this old man who taught me how to play pool, and I say, oh, he didn't recognize me. And in my mind, he didn't recognize me because I had changed so much, but everybody I told that story to thought he was senile, and that's why he didn't recognize me. So I had to change the story so nobody thought he was senile. So there, sometimes there are just little things. And I also find, um, I always tell my stories, I try to always tell my stories in front of like smaller audiences first, because you get the, there's an energy that you get from an audience that helps your story be better. You see what works and what doesn't. And you know, like that other story, there was, my beginning didn't work and I figured out a way to switch it around. So it was funny in the beginning and I got the laugh and then it worked and then it was able to flow. So I think getting feedback is, is really helpful. Um, all your stories come from a really authentic place. They're really from the heart. And I'm wondering how much you pay attention to like formal structure, middle, beginning, beginning, middle, and end, um, an arc, or you know, are these things just sort of embedded in you, or how does that work? Um, I, I pay attention to them a lot because they are very important. Um, I think it's hard because when you're working a story, sometimes you'll start and you'll start um, so far from where you're gonna end. Mm -hmm. And I think the best, a lot of good advice is to start closer to your end. Um, but I think what you end up doing is it, it kind of adapts as you work through it, as you're going through the process. You start moving the beginning, you move the end, you think, oh, do I need to tell them this for them to know that, or do they not need that at all? It's part of the editing process, so I think the one, thing I've learned is to be very fluid and not say like, this is how the story goes. This is what makes sense. But to just say like, does it make sense? Should I just start like 10 minutes before the ending and see what happens? Um, because I think, you know, you'll push to a beginning, middle and end. But I think the, the hard part is a lot of people think uh, once upon a time and they lived happily ever after. Um, and really there's stories like, every minute and they can be stretched as far or as short as you want. Um, so I think flexibility there is key. I think for me it's important, this is what I learned from listening to the moth and taking classes, is it's important to establish stakes up front. What do I have to gain or lose by the action that I'm telling in my story? So in my story, you know it right at the beginning that I've had two miscarriages, I'm pregnant again, 
and I'm nervous about the outcome. So already I've got the audience invested in my story. So I think it's, and they tell you a lot of times to start in on the action, to let people, you know, grab people, and then you can give them a little background after that. But you gotta grab your audience. If you don't grab them in the first sentence or two, you're probably not going to. Um, and I really do follow the, you know, the story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There has to be stakes. There's rising action. Something happens. You know, my daughter needs a heart operation. I need to find the right surgeon. And then the aha moment is usually near the end when I realize that, you know, Dr. Q and I are not so different. And then, you know, what did I learn from this? I learned from this basically the message is to not prejudge people and that, you know, I'm grateful. I, don't have, I won't add to that. I agree with all of that. Yeah, me too. I'll just add, to go back to what Corey said, I think that if you have a story, you don't feel like there's a beginning, middle, and end, you're looking at something that isn't really a story, it's more of an anecdote, and it's maybe a part of a future story, but I think that's a good way to kind of, one of the ways I gauge, like, is there enough here to tell a story, or is this part of a greater story? Okay, I got one thing. <laughs> if you're not familiar with it, look up the Ken Adams story spine. Um, if you have like, I have this thing and I think it's a story, but I'm not sure. It's basically a, a structure that you can try applying. Is my, does my story have a beginning, middle, end? Does something change? Is there an ever since that day? Is there a new world? Does the, ch the world change? So look it up and try to put your story into that. And if it does, you've got a story. I think we have, it looks like we have a minute and 17 seconds left. So yes, right up front. Yeah, it's right, right there. You're waiting for your microphone. I get it. Hi. I think that in, in my line of work, I tend to give other people stories rather than my own story. And sometimes what is important to them is not what is important to me. How do we make that balance? Because my, what I think is the aha moment of their story sometimes is not their aha moment because I'm a communicator. You know, I'm trying to see what do my audience so if somebody is giving you a story, how do we capture what is important to you? Oh, for me, that's uh, that I have so many context questions, I think, um, because uh, I think building off of being authentic, right? So, um, you know, in these cases, these are our stories. Uh, so I, I, I believe in uh, if someone telling their own story. So I don't, I don't know, I don't feel qualified to, I don't retell, so I don't feel yeah. qualified for that. I think honestly it's best if you, if the people you're telling the stories about, if you can somehow get them to tell their stories, even just three minutes, you know, using this kind of the beginning, middle, and end, that's gonna be much more authentic than you telling somebody else's story. And I realize that's not always possible, but if you can even just quote them, you know, in the story and like tell the story as in say, you know, when I talk to this person, this is what they told me. So again, to bring yourself into it, because I think that helps make it more authentic. And, and telling it back to them uh, is another way uh, so that they can almost uh, fact check you in, in, a, in a maybe an emotional and uh, uh, factual way. So uh, having them hear you tell their story back to them and gives them a chance to, to really yeah, have a say in it. I, can I just go one sec? Uh, to sort of write on that, sometimes when you have a story, you don't even know what your story is about. 
like I could tell a story to you, and then my like my brother will be like, you know what your story is really. <laughs> like sometimes it's actually helpful to be telling somebody else's story because we, as an outsider to it, who not having lived it, can recognize what the, the actual meaning of it is. So it's actually helpful if you are to work with your partner or your client or whoever that is to sort of help them tell their story because as an outsider, you have an insight that they don't. We can be so close to it that we think the story is about this, but it's not. It's about something else. Oh, and that's counting up now. Yeah. I was just going to ask, can you repeat that resource, the story arc resource that you said earlier? Mine is called the Ken Adams Story Spine, Ken with two N's. He's a local Bay Area um, teacher, actor, improviser, writer, and the story spine is used everywhere Pixar uses it. It's kind of like a framework where it's like the beginnings of sentences, once upon a time and every day until one day and because of that and because of that until finally. So it's like a framework that you can kind of use diagnostically, like to fix a story, or you could use it creatively to write a story. I, I do it as with my kids. We tell stories, like bedtime stories, just using that, I'll go once upon a time and my kid will fill it in and every day and they'll fill that in. So if you're stuck for a bedtime story, try that. The other resource um, is Carmine Gallo is an author and a speaker and he has a book called Talk Like Ted and it's about people in organizations telling the organi and bringing your authentic self into telling the story of your organization and yourself. And if anybody has any other questions, we have to end here, but I'm sure all of us wouldn't mind sticking around for a few minutes. We'd be happy to talk to you. And thank you for coming. That's how we procreate. Take care of my babies. I'm a 